Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Jerry, 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 Jerry. Guys, I am so excited for our guest today on our summer finale, Jerry Springer. I have to tell you, he could not be a nicer man. It was a true joy to talk with Mr. Springer, as you'll hear in my voice in just a moment. He is, of course, most well-known as the host of his self-titled talk show, Jerry Springer. He is, of course, most well-known as the host of his own self-titled talk show, Jerry Springer, where ordinary people from all walks of life went on TV to air their dirty laundry and baby mama drama. Jerry played curious counselor to the wackadoos who would show up. His earnestness in dealing with his guests made the whole thing work while never turning Springer into an exploitative villain. But Jerry's career did not start out in tabloid talk TV. He was a lawyer, mayor of Cincinnati, Ohio, and newscaster before becoming a talk show host. And those legal skills are on display now in his new show, Judge Jerry, airing in syndication all around the country. The cases feature real litigants who have filed suit in their local courts. Sometimes the cases are straightforward, while other times the order in the courtroom feels like it could devolve into mass chaos similar to Springer's old show. But Judge Jerry keeps a firm and grandfatherly hand over the proceedings, which always ends in a fair ruling. Here now to tell us how he went from Ohio Politico to television icon, our interview with Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you today, sir? Fine. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Before we uh, we talk about your career, I was actually reading about your early life, and I don't know if you've ever heard any stories about this, but I know that you were actually born in what is now the London Underground. I don't know that many people know that about you. Do, what was that? You know, did, were there any stories growing up about how that happened? Well, that was the underground at the time. It really, was the, you know, like the subway system in London. Yeah, and but it was used during the Second World War. It was used as bomb shelters. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the people would go to the underground, you know, whenever there was a fear of bombing or they heard the air raid sirens. But also women who were in their ninth month um, at night would, um, you know, if they were close, they would spend uh, the evenings in uh, in the subway tunnels because that, you know, in case they would deliver that night, Mm -hmm. it was safe to do. And uh, that's how I was born. So it wasn't that uncommon. I mean, it, you know, it it, it was not done by most people, but mm-hmm. I guess if you were born late at night <laughs> during the war, that uh, many people chose to do that. What made you want to be a lawyer? Uh, well, it. I guess I mean my real passion uh, growing up was, uh, I guess, was politics. I mm-hmm. mean, public affairs, because. My, you know, most of my family had been exterminated in Nazi Germany in the concentration camps. So when we got to America uh, in 1949, I was five years old. But 
so in my family, we were always, you know, we were raised on always thinking about public issues because obviously we had been so affected by it. So, you know, I just remember growing up and, you know, at the dinner table, you know, my parents would go around the table, my sister and I, and uh, everyone would have to tell a story they read in the newspaper that day. Now, in the beginning, when I was a young kid, it was all about baseball, the sports pages. But mm -hmm. as I, you know, got to be a teenager, et cetera, I started to read the other pages. And so I just got interested, particularly in the civil rights movement and, uh, you know, those issues that had to do with justice and lack of discrimination, that kind of stuff. So then when it came time to choosing a career, I guess I don't remember the specific day or anything, but my parents always assumed that um, I would have to be either a doctor or a lawyer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe it was part of the culture at the time. But, you know, I, I don't ever remember thinking anything else. What I, it was whether I'd go to med school or law school. Mm -hmm. And because I was interested in politics, law school seemed, uh, you know, more sensible avenue to take. And, uh, and that's how I decided to go to law school. I start the interview this way because obviously now you have Judge Jerry, but people may not know. They know you from the Springer Show and America's Got Talent. They don't. They may not know that you were a partner in a law firm for twelve years. That you had this great legal career. You were mayor of Cincinnati. What What was the transition from lawyer to newscaster and then to television host? I mean, we can take well, each in incrementally, but how does yeah. one go from the other? Well, um, it 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 was this crazy route, but. I guess when I got what brought me to Cincinnati, I graduated law school at Northwestern University in Chicago mm -hmm. and a law firm from Cincinnati had come to Northwestern and recruited me. You know, they they interviews uh, students in, in, at the law school and those, you know, and they offer some of us jobs. And so this big corporate firm from Cincinnati offered me a job. And so uh, I first went to work for Bobby Kennedy, but then when. Bobby was killed, um, which I guess, by the way, tomorrow is the anniversary of it. Yeah. But uh, when uh, Bobby was killed, then, uh, you know, I bummed around for a while and then decided, well, I'll take the Ohio bar and, you know, accept this uh, job offer that I got. And that's what happened. I passed the bar and I moved to Cincinnati to be a lawyer. Mm. But I immediately got involved in politics while I was there. I there was a campaign to lower the voting age. At the, up at that point in the United States, you had to be 21 to vote, except if you lived in Georgia or Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So uh, I headed up uh, in Southern Ohio, the campaign to lower the voting age. And uh, I was brought to Washington to testify before the Senate Judicial Committee on the constitutional amendment to lower the voting age. Mm -hmm. And so I got involved that way. And then mm -hmm. uh, the party came to me and said, why don't you run for city council, which I did and won. And then they said, why don't you run for mayor? And I did and won. And, and so, so for 10 years, I was on city council and mayor. And then uh, there were term limits. Yeah. So, um, NB, the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati literally uh, called me and said, let's go to lunch. And uh, and that lunch was about, you know, after being on city council and mayor for 10 years, you knew this, you know, the city. Mm -hmm. Why don't you 
anchor our news. And uh, I was more interested in doing political commentary, but we made a deal where I could do both. And that's what happened. So then I went to work for the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati, and I did that for 10 years. And we were number, we got to be number one in the ratings. And the company that owned the the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati also owned talk shows. They owned Phil Donahue, Sally, Jesse, Raphael. Mm -hmm. And uh, Phil was retiring or in the next year would be retiring. So again, they took me to lunch. These lunches are great. (laughs) (laughs) And they took me to lunch and said, we're going to start another. You can still do the news, but we're starting another talk show. Uh, Phil's retiring and you're the host. So they just assigned me to it, you know, Mm -hmm. because I'm an employee. And so I started hosting the Jerry Springer show and then it suddenly took off. And I guess, you know, the rest of that. Well, you were responsible. I was I was watching your interview with Larry King earlier. You were responsible for the the changeover in format to a more uh, to a more person of personal interest uh, talk show tabloid, I think is the word, although I don't necessarily like that, Uh, which uh, because you wanted to capture some of Ricky Lake's audience. Wasn't that right? Yes. In other words, it wasn't that we would go crazy. Mm-hmm. My thought was we should go young because yeah. there were 20 talk shows at the time and everyone was trying to go after uh, Oprah's audience, which at the time was middle-aged housewives. That's how the demographic was referred to. And um, and I, I just thought as a business model, why are we trying to be one out of 20 if we go after Ricky Lake's audience, and she was the first talk show to go after young people, you know, high school, college age. Mm-hmm. And I just thought as a business model, that makes more sense to compete with just one other show, not 20 others. Yeah. And uh, so we decided the very next day we're going to go young, which meant young people in the audience, young people on stage mm-hmm. and young subject matter. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, young people are much wilder and crazier in their lifestyles. And so the show started to go crazy. Yeah. And then not every day, but once in a while. And then when Universal bought us, uh, Universal said, from now on, you can only do crazy. And that's what happened. How did you feel about that? Was there any trepidation going from political commentary to crazy, as you say, these these human interest not, stories? Not really, uh, mm-hmm. because I always kept my politics separate from I mean, television was how I made a living. Yeah. So that to me was a business. My politics, which I've stayed active to this day, mm-hmm. um, that I always kept separate because uh, I didn't want to mix the two because it would have destroyed both. I mean, to me, my politics is like religion. It's something you really believe in. Mm-hmm. And I don't want my political views tempered by the need to be commercially acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I and I also knew if I started talking politics in my crazy show, mm-hmm. then no one would take the politics seriously because they think, well, what? This is a show about craziness. What's he talking about? Yeah. So I always kept it ser- uh, separate. So I let the network, you know, or the owners of the show, they mm-hmm. made the decision of what the format would be. And I'm an employee and I was, would go along with it and do the best that I could. But my politics, that I kept separate. And so whether it was, and I, you know, going around the country, giving speeches, raising money, supporting candidates, mm-hmm. or even at sometimes contemplating running myself, not anymore, but when I was younger, um, you know, that was all done separately. Mm-hmm. 
What do you make of it now that, that these uh, these talk show figures, it's all politics. There's all political messaging behind anything that they do. Is it is it too much? No, it's it's uh, we went through this in the 60s yeah. uh, when when it became our music. In other words, if if there are issues that are so overwhelming, such as back in the 60s, the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War mm-hmm. or today, uh, you know, with uh, with Trump and um, the, uh, you know, the the uh, violence right now or the protests mm-hmm. or the uh, racial insensitivity and all the, these issues now are so overwhelming. Yeah. Stay relevant. You can't avoid it. So mm-hmm. for example, in the sixties, all our music was political. Um, you know, whether it was uh, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Peter Paul and Mary, it was all, all political songs about the war or civil rights or whatever. And it's taken over our culture today because, you know, I guess particularly with Trump in there, it's pretty difficult mm-hmm. uh, to have any discussion about anything and not show your concern about what's going on. So, and I think that, you know, uh, comedians, for example, that try and joke about something else, they're people just... You know, yeah. No one pays attention to them they, because that's not what they want to be talking about. Exactly. So let's talk about Judge Jerry. I love this show. I've been watching it on YouTube. Some of the cases are up there. What do you guys <laughs> look for when you are deciding these cases? There seems to be a lot of personal conflict like your first show. Is that by design or is that just what happens when you get in a courtroom? Uh well, the truth is, most of it is what happens in in a uh, is what happens in a courtroom. If you go to, mm-hmm. you know, a small claims court, I mean, and it's always about issues that are personal. It's not like you're bringing in corporate attorneys and mm-hmm. and and talking. You're always talking about personal issues, or at least your personal property, mm-hmm. or you know, some car accident or something. So that it tends to be it. But but how it happens, I don't have anything to do in terms of. Uh, with the decision of what cases get picked, we have uh, something like uh, 25 what we call stringers around the country. Yeah. And their job, and each one is given two states. And their job every morning is to get up and go on their computers and look at every case that has been filed in that two state region. Mm-hmm. And if there's an interesting case that they think is, is right for a small claims court, um, and, if, and, you know, and it's interesting, people would be interested in seeing it or, you know, observing it. Mm-hmm. Then they call the plaintiff and the defendant and say, would you like to have your case adjudicated on national television, you know, with me as the judge? And if they say yes, uh, then they get flown, at least before this pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, they get flown to um, Connecticut and I adjudicate the cases. But I take the cases as they're handed to me. Uh, they they give me the case the uh, week before, and then that gives me time to do the research on the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of how I, you know, what how I can apply the law from that state, whatever state they're from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have to do the legal research. So I tape when we're in season. I tape every other week. I do thirty-five cases a week, and during the off week is when I'm researching the 35 cases. So really that's the harder work. 
-hmm. the actual taping is is easier than the the off week when I'm having to study the cases. Is it more work than uh, the the uh, the hour long show? Is it? Are you finding your oh working yeah, more? it's a, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I did nothing on the other show. <laughs> or, you know, uh, I mean, the, the, in other words, the less I did, I was never allowed to know what the show was about. Yeah. So really? I never knew. Yeah, I'm, I wasn't allowed to know who the guests were or what their stories were. They would hand me a card, you know, that said Jerry Springer on it that I carried around. But on the other side of the card were only the names of the guests. But my job was to ask questions that you would ask sitting at home watching and then make jokes. <laughs> so uh, so I never knew what the subject was. That's why the first question of every segment was always, so what's going on? In other words, I introduce the guests and say, and then I'd say, what's going on? And they start with my, with their story. And then, yeah. you know, and this way it was spontaneous and I could be funnier. If I knew ahead of time what their stories were, then any reaction I had would be fake. And yeah. it would just, I mean, you know, it just would look horrible. So it was much easier for me. Don't tell me what it's about and I'll find out. And even if it takes me a while to figure it out, that, that'll be funny in itself me not understanding what they're talking about yeah. and people would laugh at that because you know the young people would use phrases and language that i'm not that familiar with yeah so uh you know oftentimes they you know use some colloquialism and everyone in the audience got it but i didn't and you know there was comedy in that are you the same way but i guess in a more grandfatherly way if i can say on the court show because there seems to be things that genuinely shock you like i watched the case of the sisters with the car and she came to get the car but the car the woman was her sister was homeless and because she had to pay it she took the car back and was oh, right. heartless I about it yeah. was heartless about it you seem to be genuinely taken aback that wasn't in the answer that wasn't in the complaint uh that not that detail no right. no not that detail so well she wanted the car back but the homeless part no right and so, you know, and, and that's why I have to hear their testimony, because they yeah. always expand on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that just struck me as good God. She's your sister. What, <laughs> what's wrong with you? You know, and the other person was doing OK. In other yeah. words, it wasn't like she needed the car and it was a matter of her survival. Yeah. Uh, she had a car. And yeah, it'd be, you know, the sister should eventually pay her back or whatever. Everyone gets that. Mm -hmm. But it's like if you've got a family member in trouble, you drop everything and you, you help. Which, so I yeah, that that disturbed me. So which brings me to my point. How do you weigh? What do you look for in these cases? What are you listening for as they give their testimony? Well, the a small claims court is a court of equity. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, there is a judge is permitted to seek a just answer that doesn't necessarily fit in with the exact letter of any particular ordinance. Mm -hmm. So you can be looser. So what I do is, I you know, it's funny you mentioned grandfather. I I adopt because I really am a grandfather. You know, how yeah. would I deal with this with my grandkid, or even with my own adult daughter? Um, in other words, I look for the just answer first and then figure out a way after I figure out in my mind, you know, what's really fair and just and, you know, what, what would you say if this was happening in your family mm -hmm. and then find a, a, a legal principle that I can apply to it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's tough to do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, it's pretty tough to find a legal 
principle that supports the person. And yet, you know, for example, in that uh, in the case of the car that Mm -hmm. you mentioned, there's no question that the sister who didn't make the payments owed her the other sister owed the sister the money. Yeah. Period. I mean, there was legally it was a slam dunk case. But then when you add that the justice to it, I had to go against, I had to do what was, you know, what, what just seemed to me a just humane thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that is a case where you have to balance. And whenever at all possible, I, I come out on what I think is a fair and just answer rather than just a legal technicality. I love that. Are you rediscovering, uh, not that you ever lost it, but are you rediscovering a love for the law in doing this show? Oh, sure. Yeah, because it's, you know, my other show, and mm-hmm. I'll, you know, I'll I'll never berate it because it's giving me this wonderful life and it was so much fun to do. Yeah. I mean, in terms of sheer fun, it was the best job you could have in the world. I mean, every day you went in and it was a circus. Yeah. So it was total fun. But it wasn't legal. It wasn't uh, intellectually stimulating at all. I didn't have to use my mind. I mean, adults could do what I did. Yeah. And this, you know, for the first time in 30 years, forces me to have to think and read and reason again. And uh, mm-hmm. and I really enjoy that. It's a wonderful exercise. I spend time in my office and just, you know, reading and working on cases. So that's I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that about your old show because what people don't realize is they go, oh, my God, why why are they doing that? Why are they putting these poor people on display? They were in on the joke. They wanted to come on and do this and, and get the reactions and, oh, totally. and have it in I mean, front of national television. Oh, it's purely voluntary. In yeah. other words, you could never call someone out of the blue mm-hmm. and, and just get them to come on a show. Yeah. They'd say, what? <laughs> the only way you could be on the show is by calling us. Yeah. Is by saying, I've got this story and I want to be on. You've got to desperately, and then it's got to be interesting. Mm-hmm. So you got to desperately want to be on that show in order to get on it. So there was never a question of someone being sandbagged. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, they, they make the decision. They even get to choose what's talked about and what's not. Yeah. Now, I know the CW, uh, as far as I read, this could be outdated. The CW retains the rights to boot back up production on on Jerry Springer. Would you go back? Would you do it again? Well, it'd be pretty difficult. First of all, I'm not sure it'd be necessary because we have Mm -hmm. just about 5,000 episodes. So, (laughs) you know, whoever wants to run the show is not going to run out of material. And because it's been on for 20, well, now it's been on for 29 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously half the audience has never seen the show before. Yeah. I mean, never seen that episode before. Right. In other words, you know, half the audience isn't 29 years old. Yeah. So, you know, you start running shows from back then, it's going to be new to them. Yeah. So as a practical matter, that wouldn't be necessary. And also, I don't know that I could do that show while still doing Judge Jerry, just right. the scheduling wouldn't work out. So, yeah, no, I, I, I think I had to make a choice. And, uh, you know, people that like the old show, we've got 5,000 episodes. <laughs> you I know, that. Y- yeah, you won't live long enough to see them all. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Um, my last two questions for you. You mentioned production before the pandemic. I actually have had two other court show judges uh, since uh, since before talking to you. And I'm just wondering if you specifically, since you're one judge, um, if you're considering doing episodes remotely where the litigants call in and you're there on set and they call in and you do it maybe through Zoom or something. Yeah, yeah we're going to... Uh... I think in a couple of weeks, we're going to shoot a couple of episodes, see how it goes. Oh, cool. Uh, um, so, yeah, we're going to try that. And, uh, you know, we'll see it because there may be some practical reasons why. I mean, clearly, you know, for me, it's the easy part. Yeah. But if you're taking people, you know, they're going to have to have set it up in their own homes. Mm -hmm. The technical problems. Oh, I didn't hear that. You know, it's... Uh, in other words, it's easier – the idea, say, yeah, we could do it because everyone's doing Zoom, for example. But to actually have it work, um, we'll see what it looks like. So, you know, we'll take some shows. and um, But if not, we're – you know, I'll, we'll go back to the studio. And right now I think we're planning to go back or, you know, around August um, for the new season. So we've got all the shows taped for this season. Right. Um, but, uh, for the new season, you know, the schedule was to go back sometime in August. So that may be, obviously when we won't have a studio audience, you know, we won't have people in the, in the gallery. Yeah. Um, but you know, a plaintiff and defendant would certainly be, you know, they're about 20 feet away from each other and they're 15, 20 feet away from me. Yeah. So, you know, it, it can be handled with just 10 people in the studio. Um, including the cameraman. So it could be done. And I think that's what we're looking to do uh, for the brunt of the season. But, you know, we have to, we're going to have to play it by ear like everybody else. But yeah, we'll take a look at doing at least some shows remotely in the beginning. But I'm not convinced, even though some other people are, and we're going to do it, uh, I'm not convinced that's going to turn out to be real practical. Yeah, uh, because you're you're asking these plaintiffs and defendants so all of a sudden there's a whole new element to what they have to do. Yeah. And so they're going to be nervous about getting the camera in the right position. And is the lighting right? And oh, my God, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I mean, you know, can you imagine in the middle of the case that going on? No. Uh, you know, so it's you know, it's uh, the devil's in the details. And for that, it, it may just be too difficult, but we'll give it a shot. Great. We're going to try it. Great. And my last question, before I get to my last question, I just have to say Terry Fader says hello. He's a good oh, friend. And, yeah, uh, he's great. Please tell him hi. We A great memory with him. And, uh, yeah, he's probably, well, maybe he's told you the story, but the prompter went down just before I declared him the winner. Really? Oh, gosh. you got to yeah. tell me about that. I'm sorry to keep you, but please tell me about that. Yeah. No, what happened was, uh, it was him and uh, another fellow, a guitar player, very good player. Yeah. And uh, they were both up there. We were taking a break. And, you know, this is national television live. And I said, when we come back, we're going to announce the winner. And I didn't know it yet. I didn't know who the winner would be because they were going to tell me in my ear, you know, in a, they were going to because they didn't want me to know ahead of time. Right. Which which makes sense. Otherwise, I'd be you know, unconsciously or subconsciously talking one way to who I thought was the winner, et cetera. So anyway, I didn't know. So they wanted to keep it fresh. And then during the station break, they would, in my ear, uh, 
in the IFB say which one won. So now I got the signal, you know, five seconds were coming back. They're counting down, but they still haven't told me who won. And then I see the floor director giving the stretch sign. So now I'm on live television. <laughs> 30 million people are watching. I have to decide which one of these two is going to get a million dollars. And I'm thinking to myself, I should take a time out and negotiate. <laughs> the truth is, I could have said any, either one of them. Oh my gosh. And who would know? Right? Oh, I mean, there's, wow. no one that, there's no person in America that that is sitting at home knows the counting of the votes that's done secretly. Right. So, you know, what were they going to do? Come back the next day and say, no, he was wrong and ruined the whole show. Yeah. So I really had that second. If I was a bad human being, <laughs> I had in my, my power to make one of the two a millionaire. Oh, God. And then, and, and then I just started, uh, what do you call it? Stretching. And I would just talk, I said, this has been an amazing season. And, you know, we got, Two, you know, tremendous performers. They're both going to have wonderful careers. You know, I'm saying all this stuff, and meanwhile, you know, I'm, I'm shaking. Figured, come on, tell me. <laughs> Finally, they, I don't know. There was something wrong with the IFB. They suddenly blurted out in my ear, oh um, my Terry Fader, Terry Fader. And oh, so wow. I gave. So there it was. But I, I, I told Terry that story. I said, you realize, you know, I could have gone the other way. <laughs> you should give me. You should give me ten percent. <laughs> You're, you're the you were the on-air agent <laughs> yeah but he's such a great talent i he mean is. he's such a great talent so good for him he is I'm he is well i know we're at the almost at the end of our time but the thing i can't help think when i watch judge jerry is that this is not that you don't have many many years ahead of you on, on television and broadcasting or whatever you want to do but the show it's almost like it feels to me the culmination of your career. Legal, you get to discuss issues, you're on television, you're helping people with their problems. It's everything. Yeah, it is. Well, it's a, well. first of all, it will be the culmination. I'm not going to do something. I'm 76 already. Um, so, but it is, it's every job I've ever had somehow fits into the one I now have. It's like I've gone full circle. I start out as, you know, law school as a lawyer. Yeah. And I go through all these careers, but something from each of those careers works for the job I now have, whether it was the, the, the law, the dealing with disputes or a television, mm -hmm. those skill, whatever skills you pick up doing those jobs, it all comes together in being a judge on television. Yeah. Wow. So it's uh, it has some poetry to it. I, love I just don't want, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I think we're in the last chapter. That's what scares me. <laughs> yeah. Well, who knows? Because if anything's been uh, certain in your career, it's that uh, you never know which way it's going to turn. Jerry Springer, an honor. I've been a fan for many years. My grandfather would put you on on the original show when I'd stay with them. And, and uh, I'd, I'd watch it oh, actually as a, as a kid. I was watching your show. Yeah. I don't know if I should admit that. but No, uh... I appreciate that. You are, That is awfully nice. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thanks a lot, Matt. You take it easy. Thank you, Judge Jerry. It was a real pleasure having you. How fitting that we book-ended this season of Talk for Two with two talk show hosts. Plus, we had a lot of judges this season, so 
perfect end. And it is true. I have to take a few week break, but if all goes to plan, when we come back on October 3rd, 2020, it will be with a mega huge guest. So again, we're only taking a few weeks off and I can't say more than that as to who the guest is going to be because when I tease things that aren't recorded yet, inevitably Murphy's Law, there is always a hitch. Is that Murphy's Law? No, Murphy's Law is the law of observation. So I guess if I tell you who it is, you're going to be observing my social media pages and looking out for it. But next season will include actor and chopped host Dean McDermott, country superstar Neil McCoy, that's actually from The Vault, that one Neil McCoy, and so many more guests, both from The Vault and new guests, and I cannot wait to share that with you. That is it for us today. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for more. Subscribe to the podcast by searching Talk for Two in iTunes, Stichter, and wherever you get your podcast. Find the show at Talk for Two on Facebook and Twitter, and on Insta at Talk for Two Pod. And I've been posting there posting a lot about my video studio, a lot about the tech I use. So it's really cool, not only if you want to see who's upcoming, but how I make this whole crazy shebang work. Reach out to me directly at talkfor2cast at gmail.com. That is T-A-L-K-F-O-R-T-W-O-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Have a wonderful and safe Labor Day weekend. Signing off until fall, I'm Matt Bailey reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>